Shalom. I am Rabbi Michael Pont, and this is for the love of Judaism. This past week, this past Tuesday, was Yom HaShoah, a day to remember the Holocaust. And at my synagogue, the Marlboro Jewish Center, we had uh, the survivor, Eva Wiener, who has a very unique story. So check it out. I'd like to introduce our special guest, Eva Wiener. Eva Wiener was one of the youngest passengers on the ship St. Louis on its famous Atlantic crossing of 1939. The St. Louis's 937 Jewish passengers were not permitted to disembark in Havana, and the ship was to return to Germany since no country was willing to accept their passengers. The ship cruised the Atlantic for four weeks, searching for a safe haven. So Eva will come forward to tell us her story. Um, if there is time, we might take one or two questions. So let me call forward our guest, Eva Wiener. Thank you, Rabbi Pond. Good evening. For most of my life, I did not consider myself a Holocaust survivor. I had none of the earmarks that would describe a survivor. I was not a hidden child. I didn't go to a concentration camp. My name was not Anne Frank or had a story like hers. But by the time I'm finished, I hope you'll agree that I did change my mind and now do consider myself a survivor of the Holocaust. But I will tell you my own personal story. Both my parents were born in Poland. And in the early 1900s, the pogroms that existed in Polish communities against the Jews forced each of them to leave Poland and travel through Europe looking for safe haven. Both families ended up in Berlin, Germany. Now, Berlin was a very welcoming city at the time, in the early 1900s. It was a very sophisticated, modern community, many museums and theaters and universities, And my father's family consisted of eight children. And my grandfather and grandmother established a bakery. And of course, all eight children worked in the bakery. And that was very common in those days. My mother was one of four children. And they also were able to go to public school. My father went to public school, but of course, he also went to yeshiva. But the business thrived and everything was wonderful. Until 1933, when something known as the Nuremberg Laws were enacted, some 400 laws directed against the Jewish population. Jewish doctors were not allowed to permit, were not permitted to treat anybody other than Jewish patients. Children were no longer allowed to go to public school. Businesses were only allowed to deal with other Jewish clients, and so forth. Life became very difficult for the Jewish population in Germany. And then, of course, someone by the name of Adolf Hitler came to power, and he initiated further restrictions on the Jews. My mother's family was very, very insecure, but my father's even more so. My grandparents, one uncle, and three aunts left for Palestine, now, of course, the state of Israel. They left Germany in 1936. My mother's brother also left Germany and went to Havana, Cuba. Then, of course, the greatest Holocaust event, Kristallnacht, happened. 
The following day, my father was taken out of the apartment and put on a train with hundreds of other men and sent back to country of origin. He was sent back to Warsaw. He found himself sharing a one-bedroom apartment with 12 other men. But that wasn't the hard part. He had no idea what the situation would be for his wife and baby, and that was my mother and me, left back in Berlin. My mother was told that if she could get a visa out of the country, there would be a possibility that my father could be released and join us. So my mother and her two sisters started standing on lines of every consulate or every embassy that found itself in Berlin, sometimes days on end, begging, pleading with any country that would issue a visa. My mother was delighted. She got a visa to a place called Siam. People have never heard of that today. The kids at least don't know it. That's where Thailand is now. But she was very happy. She now registered herself as being able to leave the country. My father was able to make his way back from Warsaw to Berlin on the condition that we leave immediately. My mother had also sent money to her brother in Cuba, begging him to please try to purchase a visa to Cuba. He was able to purchase what they called a landing permit to Cuba. Well, making a decision as to whether or not to go to Siam or go to Cuba wasn't a difficult decision to make. Siam being a third world undeveloped country or going to Cuba where we actually had family, now my uncle, and a very modern, beautiful destination type island only 90 miles away from America, which of course was the ultimate goal. My mother was able to book passage on the MS St. Louis a Hamburg America line. My father came back to Berlin. They packed what little they were permitted to take, only one suitcase per person, and very little cash that you were permitted to take out of the country. And they packed what little they had, got on a train, and went to Hamburg. We got to the dock, and there was this beautiful, magnificent cruise ship, as any cruise ship at that time was. And there was a band playing, and there were banners flying, and there was a photographer running around the the dock. And everything was very festive, because 937 Jews were now able to leave the terrible conditions under which they were living aboard this beautiful cruise ship headed to, hopefully, freedom. And it was a wonderful cruise. There were dances and parties and movies. And the captain even took down Hitler's portrait from the salon so that synagogue services could be held there. Captain was very, very cognizant of the pressure that the passengers were under. He was not a member of the Nazi party, and he did not agree with their philosophy, and he wanted his passengers to be as comfortable as conceivably possible. And he was very emphatic that the crew would treat us as royally as on any cruise to a paradise-type vacation. Now we're going to Cuba and arriving in Havana Harbor, but not allowed to get to the dock, anchored in the harbor. Nobody knew what was happening. We were all prepared to leave the ship. Our bags were packed, but we couldn't get to the dock. And all of a sudden, there's all this negotiation going on. 
captain gets into this little ship, little boat, and he goes to the dock and he comes back. And then some very important people are coming to the ship. And there's all this conferencing going on. The people were panicking. It became very, very real that something terrible was happening. One man that my father had spoken to became so distraught that he actually slit his wrists and jumped overboard because he had told my father the night before that he would do anything not to go back to Germany. He had already been in Dachau, a concentration camp. A passenger committee was formed to contact every country in the world, begging, pleading for a safe haven for passengers. You see, what had happened was the Nazi propaganda machine had set their agents to advise the president of Cuba, President Brew, not to acknowledge our papers, which, by the way, we paid a great deal of money for. We also paid round-trip tickets on the ship, knowing we weren't coming back. But the, air, the cruise line demanded round-trip fare. Now all this fright and fear. By the way, the man that jumped overboard was rescued by one of the, one of the cabin boys and brought to the dock and brought to a hospital. But his family remained on the ship. All these negotiations that we thought were happening brought no fruit. Finally, the captain said, you know, we're only 90 miles away from Miami. I'm turning the ship around, and I will bring it to Miami, and surely America will allow us to dock. As a matter of fact, a telegram had been sent to Roosevelt, president of America at the time. He never even answered the telegram. So we headed towards Miami. My father used to say, you could almost read the license plates on the taxis on Ocean Avenue. That's how close we were to Miami and the beautiful hotels and the palm trees. The minute we got that close, the Coast Guard came out and threw us out of American waters and told us we were trespassing. Now the captain did not have a choice. He had to turn the ship back to Europe. But he came across the PA system and promised the passengers he would do anything in his power to bring us anywhere but Germany. Because he knew what our fate would be if we were returned to Germany. So many, many telegrams went to many different countries. The Jewish agency got involved and even offered a per-head ransom to any country that would take passengers. They offered $500 per person. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but in 1939, that's a lot of money. Countries were offered cash if they would take passengers. On our way back to Europe, fortunately, four countries agreed to take some passengers. Belgium, Holland, France, and England agreed to take some. Nobody said, I'd take 900 people. Not an awful lot of people. But the passenger list was divided up. And many years later, I asked my father why he chose and asked to be put on the list for England. And his answer was, I wanted as much mileage away from Germany as possible, and England was that country, and hopefully the English Channel would be a buffer. 
And that was his philosophy. And that's why he requested. Because we knew no one in England. On the contrary, when we docked in Antwerp, Belgium, my aunt and uncle and baby cousin, my father's sister, brother-in-law and baby, were standing on the dock to greet us. I was surprised that he didn't choose Belgium, knowing that his sister was already living there. But my aunt and my uncle and their baby did not survive the war, as most of the Jews in Belgium, since that was one of the first countries that the Nazis invaded. And those that went to Belgium, Holland, and France had very little chance of survival unless they were able to leave those countries quickly. We in England were the luckiest. Of course, England fought on the side of the Allies, but were bombed by Nazi troops continuously. I spent many, many hours, many nights, with my mother alone in bomb shelters. My father, being a baker, was able to work at night when most of the bombing happened. When he'd come home in the morning, often he would not be able to find us because we had been evacuated to other parts of the city because our area had been bombed. But living in the shelters and living in England was a piece of cake compared to what my life might have been had we gone to Belgium, Holland, or France. We lived the entire war in London, except for a brief time that my parents and I went to a place called Manchester, because the Blitz in London was extremely heavy at the time. But other than that, we lived in London until the end of the war, and came to America one year after the war. You see, we had been issued immigration numbers, but they were chosen like a lottery. Some people waited months, some people made, waited years for their numbers to come up. My parents and I needed to wait for one year after the war ended before we had permission to come to America. We arrived in New York Harbor by ship in May of 1946, one year after the war was over, and arrived on Memorial Day weekend during a dock strike. It was common in those days, but deja vu. We felt that this was a reminiscent of what happened in Havana because we could not get off the ship immediately. But fortunately, the dock strike ended after the weekend, and on Tuesday morning, we were able to leave the ship. And that first summer, I spent in Belmar, New Jersey. My mother's sister had been sponsored by an uncle in Belmar, and that's where she resided. I was fortunate enough to swim the Atlantic Ocean my first summer in America. Eventually, we moved to Astoria, New York, where I grew up, but I married a man from Belmont, New Jersey, my cousin's friend. I've been living at the Jersey Shore ever since and now live in Neptune, and I'm grateful that in 1946, the United States changed enough to allow me entry. I repaid that by working for the United States government in the Department of Defense as a budget analyst. That was my way of saying thank you for finally allowing me to come to America. The reason I changed my mind about my status as a Holocaust survivor is because I found out that the St. Louis had been chosen 
by the Nazi propaganda machine to show the world that they not only were allowing Jews to leave, they were encouraging Jews to leave, but nobody was going to allow them in. You see, President Brule of Cuba found no problem in denying us entry and declaring our papers to be worthless because he took the advice of his Nazi agents that were giving him advice. And the money that we had paid for our landing permits had been pocketed by his rival, and he didn't see any of that, and he was corrupt enough to be able to declare this and follow what the Nazis wanted to show the world, that we were unwanted cargo, that no one in the world was going to allow us in, and that we were untermenschen, subhuman, to their übermenschen, their superiority. They were showing the world that nobody cared, so they were going to solve the Jewish problem with the final solution, and that the ship became a symbol for what their ultimate goal was going to be. So when I realized that I was a part of history that was a symbol of the Holocaust, I was compelled to start speaking, especially to children. And when I do talk to children, I give them a homework assignment as my final goodbye. Nobody likes homework, I know. But I tell them that this assignment doesn't have to be completed for about 20 years. But I need that promise that they will fulfill it. Since we survivors are not going to be here much longer by virtue of our age, the story of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, has to be transmitted to their children, eventually their grandchildren, and all that they can contact, because God forbid we live it again. That every one of them, every person, as was our captain, one person, stood up against something that he felt was unjust. That he, we in America, who not only have the right, but the duty to stand up against prejudice, anti-Semitism, hate, bigotry, even bullying, that it is our responsibility to be upstanders. And as Elie Wiesel said, a bystander is as bad as a perpetrator. So the responsibility of everyone in this room as well is to pass on the message that hate and bigotry and anti-Semitism cannot be endured. We have the responsibility to stand up against any injustice that we see. Uh, Eva, thank you very much for telling us your story, for being here with us tonight, for sharing your experience, for inspiring us. Uh, we have a few moments. So does anyone have a question for Eva? Uh, yes, uh, Edie. Go ahead. So Edie is asking about the number of survivors of the SS St. Louis. How many are still around today? Does, does Eva know? And does she keep in touch with them? As far as survivors, they, the, the figure is that approximately 260 people did not survive from the 900. And most of those, of course, were in England. As far as survivors today of the St. Louis, there are approximately 20 of us. We do have reunions and have gotten together. The most recent one 
was in Canada, where Justin Trudeau invited us to the parliament where he apologized publicly. We were presented with a pin, wined and dined at a wonderful dinner, had a private meeting with Premier Justin, Justin Trudeau, Jerry, very charming man, and they apologized. He spent 20 minutes on the floor of parliament. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. And there were six survivors of the St. Louis present at that time. Unfortunately, by virtue of age, we are losing them all the time. I am one of the youngest. My mother was carrying me aboard the ship when I was 10 months old. So what I'm telling you is basically their story, which they often shared with me. I'm grateful for the fact that they did share the story and their emotions and what happened before and after the ship's voyage. But as I said, the story that they told me was just a family story until I realized what historical significance it had. All right, uh, Edie Seligman has another question. Was the captain of the ship recognized as one of the righteous Gentiles? Yes, I, I would have explained that even if you hadn't asked. But I, yes, I would like to emphasize that his commission was taken away from him and he lived the war as a pop in poverty. And when the St. Louis survivors found out about it, we supported him financially for the rest of his life. His nephew presented us with his captain's cap as a souvenir. And yes, we have recognized him at Yad Vashem as a righteous among the nations. And I had the privilege of honoring him about seven years ago on a, a trip that we planned with some other survivors to pay him um, homage, and we recognize him definitely. My mother used to say he was definitely one of our saviors. I mean, that is so important to know. Eva, thank you. Okay, let's, uh, let's just give another round of applause for Eva Wiener. Again, that was Eva Wiener. Such a powerful story, a great presentation. Uh, we had a lot of people, well over 100 people in the sanctuary on Tuesday, and it was quiet, completely quiet during her talk. It was just inspiring and wonderful. As I said, Tuesday was Yom HaShoah, but that is not the complete name. The day's legal name was formalized in Israel in a law passed on August 19th, 1953. The official name is Yom HaShoah V'Hagvurah, a day of remembrance of the Holocaust and heroism. Now, why is that last word, heroism, so important? Uh, I think it's important is because the day's purpose is not only to memorialize the dead, although this is very important. Further. We need this day to recall the hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of acts of courage that came in all different shapes and sizes during World War II. So remembering courage and heroes is also very important so that we can feel inspired, uh, that we know that people were trying their, their best under the most extreme difficult circumstances. They were trying to make a difference, trying to live 
and trying to help others. Many people were doing that. Many people were acting with courage like heroes. As my friend, Dr. Dr. Stacy Gallen of the Maimonides Institute for Medicine, Ethics, and the Holocaust taught me, we have to take the lessons of the Holocaust and apply them to our lives today. Otherwise, what's the point? We have to speak out against anti-Semitism, against prejudice and hate as it appears in all forms. Uh, unfortunately, this kind of vitriol and negativity is on the rise both in America and around the world, and we must take a stand. We must speak out. That is the gvura. That is the heroism uh, that we have to embody today. In our Hebrew school on Wednesday, we taught about Yom HaShoah v'ha and with Stacy's help, we encouraged the students to write down on a postcard, on a index card, one thing that they could do to make the world a better place. Just one thing. Our plan is to collect all of those cards and create a display that I hope will be inspiring for the students, their families, and for uh, the entire community here in Marlboro. I called Eva and I thanked her so much. This I called her after the fact. I thanked her so much for her presentation. And I said that I wanted to make a donation in her honor to an organization that she cares about. So she asked if I would make a donation. And it's a local organization called Change. And that's with two H's. It's the Center for Holocaust, Human Rights, and Genocide Education that is housed at Brookdale Community College uh, here in Monmouth County, New Jersey. They have exhibits, events, a digital archive, resources for educators, and so much more. So in honor of Eva Wiener, I will make a donation to change. She also said that she, she supports the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Center in Israel. Uh, so one thing that we can do in addition to being courageous, standing up to hate, is we can support these organizations uh, that do great work, not only, again, to remember those who died at the hands of the Nazis, but to support education for today's young people and people of all ages so that we will remember the lessons of the Holocaust and apply them to life right now. Um, our world is in desperate need of that kind of education. So again, I hope you enjoyed this episode, everybody. Peace out.